Before we begin, I'd like for you to just close your eyes and think about the area that you live within. Does it feel like a strong community or is it just somewhere that you go to lay your head? Does the area that you live within reflect who you are? Does it reflect what you want? And more crucially, does it reflect what you actually need? You see, before this conversation today with Dana, I'd never actually thought about how the built environment impacts us. And afterwards, it's become so clear that the way in which our environments are designed isn't just a matter of simple interest. It's a crucial tool in redefining our social fabric. Today on the podcast, we're thrilled to have Dana Walker as a guest. She has a very interesting background. She was an electrician turned architect, and now she's the founder of a social enterprise called Built By Us. Built By Us are on a mission to diversify the construction sector. Dana hasn't only navigated this industry, but she's fundamentally working to reshape an industry that has been resistant to change. Now, in this episode, you're going to learn a lot. We dive into the world of urban planning and city design and how these fields impact our lives and communities. We'll look into the role that inclusive design plays in empowering individuals and fostering equality. You'll walk away from this conversation with actionable insights and strategies that you can use to drive change in your own community. This is 1000 Voices, your go-to source if you're a Black Briton wanting to drive change but stuck at the how. We talk to Black British leaders from all walks of life, from entrepreneurs to corporate professionals and community activists. We unpack the tools that they've used to drive change and then give you the blueprint so you can go away and drive change too. I'm Tevin Kitto and without further ado, this is the 1000 Voices podcast and here we have Dana Walker. I remember reading a paper this was maybe a few years ago. It was not long after the Flint, Michigan, when they had the issue of their water. Yeah. And it was um, a woman, it was a white American woman, mm. and wrote a paper on environmental racism. Yeah. And I had never, ever come across the term until mm. I read that paper. Mm-hmm. And whilst I can't remember the details of the paper, she spoke about how long it's been. I don't think at the time they'd solved the water crisis there, but how long it was taking to solve and then mm-hmm. the how the different groups within the area are being treated differently and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and it really did open my eyes to mm-hmm. environmental racism and the ways in which our communities can adversely affect or does adversely affect um, certain groups of people yeah. much more than other groups of people. And when I heard you speak at the event a couple of months ago and you spoke, you brought up something along those lines. I don't think you used the word environmental racism, but that's mm-hmm. what it reminded me of. Mm-hmm. When you spoke about, for example, how these different areas, um, particularly in London, are set up differently. In richer areas, they have more green spaces. Yeah. In some of the poorer areas, they don't, ha- don't have as many green spaces and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then to kick things off, I think it would just be interesting to hear um, your insights into that, that side of things, whether you believe there is a level of that environmental racism in the UK. Yeah. And if so, what why (laughs) what's caused it Mm. that's such an interesting question so i guess first of all it's interesting to think about the makeup of society within the uk um and we have a number of different things that we're kind of dealing with in terms of the structures so um the structures around race and particularly racism classism all of these different things but they really impact where power sits and where money sits Um, So some of the things that we think about and talk about in this space are not always intentional, but the impact is the same. So whether you intend that people are living in the most polluted areas of the city or near busy roads and that kind of thing or not, 
it's having an impact, particularly on the black community, poorer communities, um, communities that don't have um, a huge amount of agency in the public space. Um, and this really interests me as someone who went through um, architecture um, and worked in practice and worked on housing um, and regeneration projects, you could see so many of these sorts of themes coming through, but people didn't frame it in that way. So it took me a while to kind of, you know, look at that and kind of, well, what is the language for this? And I do think the US has been kind of a leader in talking about this. So I often talk about spatial justice as a kind of framing of this because it goes into class, into gender, into all sorts of um, different areas. So the kinds of things that um, I was talking about in um, that particular presentation are connected to what I would describe as psychological accessibility. How do spaces make us feel? Do we feel welcome or not? Um, put in the sort of simplest term. And then secondly, the impact of how spaces are thought of in terms of who deserves to be in a space or not. Um, what kind of level of consideration do groups of people have? And that's where you start to see bias become tangible, literally making our biases concrete, physical, and something as you that you can see as you move around different areas of London. Of course, London is a really exciting place in terms of its development. So no matter where you are, there's always a new thing going up on the street. We've seen this explosion of housing and particularly the kind of luxury housing. You're a professional, you only need a one bed or a two bed, that kind of thing. Um, we haven't necessarily seen huge amounts of um, family housing. And when we talk about the housing crisis, it's almost as if, well, it's it's a you problem. You obviously haven't saved up enough money. You've been eating too many avocados, whatever it is. <laughs> Drinking too much coffee. Exactly. <laughs> but actually, there are lots of people who don't have choice. And as architects, we're not necessarily part of that whole narrative. We're not responsible for the whole thing. But I think if we're not aware of how this works, we can be an unwitting um, bystander or collaborator in the way that the built environment is impacting negatively for people who are marginalised or underrepresented. When we talk about the built environment and how it how it can impact, well, either positively or negatively, different mm. groups of people. So I think back to my own experience growing up. Yeah. So I grew up here in Leytonstone in East London. Mm. And growing up, it was the high crime. There was all sorts of stuff happening within the area. And I've always had my opinions based on on why the area is mm. like what it is and mm. you know a lot of it has to do with probably the same kind of narrative in a lot of these type of areas where it's um, lack of funding and you know maybe lack of opportunity and you know all sorts of things like that mm. and now after hearing you speak and talking with you I'm wondering in your opinion how much the built environment would play into that kind of situation the situation that I grew up in grew mm. up in and probably the situation that a lot of other people have, have grown up in or are still in right now yeah. No, it's a really good question. And I'm, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a kind of 100% thing that if you grow up in a particular space, 100% the outcomes for your life will be, um, you know, all negative, for example. However, when you look at the data, you are seeing a correlation with, you know, whether people's life expectancy is as long in areas where if there's more crime, there's more stress. 
you know you're going to be worrying about how you travel around that space whether it's safe to maybe um, the children don't get to um, come together and play as much because you think well I don't want to send them to that park or to that play space if you've got issues with your building the lift doesn't work the um, quality of the indoor air condensation mold unfortunately we had you know an absolute tragedy that really brought that to the fore recently but all of these things impact how you live your life what your day is like and a if you have choice so you have the money to go i don't like this area i'm going to move most people particularly those who are growing up in sort of social housing or supported housing don't have that choice if it's bad oh well tough you're just going to have to put up with it and you spend your days um, communicating with your landlords, your social housing provider saying, can you come and fix this? You need to sort this. And often that's a really long, drawn out process, right? Mm. Um, one of the quotes that often is sticking in my mind from um, James Baldwin, an American um, writer, and I would say a philosopher. So he often says, you know, it takes a lot of time and, and work to be poor. Um, and, you know, if you're having to deal with all of these issues all the time, that's something on top of your job and your family and your friendships. You're constantly in this sort of situation of um, high stress. And these are the things that in terms of built environment, we can address. So if we're looking at building homes, for example, that are you know, designed to be well-maintained are actually very good quality homes in the first place. If we are making sure that we are maintaining and we're not just waiting for people to scream before we say, oh, actually, yeah, maybe we do need to um, fix that. It's been quite horrific in some of the things that have come to the fore in terms of housing disasters, that often part of the commentary is the residents were saying for years there was a problem. Mm and they weren't taken seriously, they weren't, they were ignored, etc, etc. So there's something not only about the design of the built environment, but how people kind of, I suppose, connect and engage in the maintenance of that. And if they're raising issues, and everyone goes, Oh, well, not my problem, or I don't care, because I don't think that your voice is as important as someone else's. That's a huge problem that has res resulted in lost lives. When we talk about the maintenance of the built environment, mm. um, <clears throat> what, in what do, you, do you feel that, because with the growth or the right, I don't know exactly when mm. um, large council estates came into the UK, you might have better insight than I do on that. Mm. Um, but do you feel like they've negatively impacted communities and the built environment in general, just because there's so many people in one place, nobody will take ownership and say, okay, let's keep this nice and... Absolutely, absolutely. So we're talking about post-World War II um, social housing programmes. So part of it, and particularly for East London, is because it was it suffered under the bombing. Um, so suddenly there was um, housing loss. There were also lots of quite large spaces that you could say we're going to rebuild again. There was a huge amount of optimism at the time. Um, the other thing that was happening was slum clearance. So there were Victorian terrace housing that didn't have, you know, great heating or bathrooms and things like that. Right, here's an opportunity. We can build something new. We can build it better. And actually, if you look at some of the ads of the time um, and the newspaper stories, it was very, you know, a celebration. Look, we've got these modern mm. homes. You can have heating on. And for many families, that was going to be amazing. 
But the maintenance issue, these were new building types. So we're talking about often high-rise concrete um, or low-rise concrete buildings with um, kind of walkways between different blocks, what was then called um, streets in the sky, but nothing like a street. You know, none of the interaction or the planting or the shops, nothing, none of that. But they were still called streets in the sky because you could um, connect one place to another and maybe you didn't have to cross the busy road, for example. Um, so in this enthusiasm um, and optimism, I think there was quite a lot of experimentation that was done. So London, as we know it, is built on a number of different time frames. So you've got the centre of the city by the river. Please tell me if I'm going on to talk okay. about this stuff. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically the city... Um, is based on a kind of, you know, it's one of the oldest parts. So the kind of Londinium, there's still a bit of Roman wall near the uh, Museum of London. And then everybody's added their bits over time. So Georgian London, Victorian London, and now right to the modern age. Um, so what it felt like is for a lot of that post-war housing, the lessons that were learned and the things that were good in that kind of traditional street pattern were kind of lost. So it's not unusual mm. that you turn up to a state and it isn't a roadmap. It's like a, this is the um, Shakespeare block and the blah blah, it's a chestnut block and, a, mm. and they do their own little map and you're standing there going, I still don't really get this and you start wandering around. You get to where you think the building is and you're not even sure where the front door is. There's a huge mound of glass, grass, but no one's playing on it, strangely. And usually there's a sign saying no ball games. <laughs> so <laughs> you're kind of in this space that um, in terms of how you intuitively navigate is completely different. Then you don't maintain them. So you're seeing the, the materials degrade, you're seeing windows get broken, lifts get broken, and after a while maybe they're not being fixed regularly enough. Um, there are changes to how things work around them, bin stores, all of that kind of stuff. And you can quite quickly see a space start to degrade and become um, have a feeling that it's not a space that you should be hanging around in or a space that's really yours. There's no ownership of that space. So the maintenance issue becomes something really huge and actually becomes something quite political, particularly during the 80s. Um, so Margaret Thatcher um, was, you know, cutting budgets as um, Tories often do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the maintenance of the buildings was part of the kind of issue. So they became even more downgraded. And that's when we started to see this reputational change. So we had early this kind of, this is very exciting, we've got brand new homes to, oh, you don't want to go to that space. These are no-go areas. And the police and the press paid a part in kind of really shouting this thing um, to anyone who'd listened, saying that these are you know, poor areas, bad areas, sink estates, all this language kind of um, um, changed. So maintenance is a, a really huge part of it. And some of the buildings actually, in terms of their internal arrangements, were quite generous in terms of their um, space or actually had amazing views and that kind of thing. But often people wouldn't want to live there because the quality of the environment wasn't good. 
It's quite interesting because I didn't know all of that history, and that's very interesting. <laughs> it's very interesting to hear. And it's interesting to hear that it was a it's a government thing. They they come in post war era. Okay, we're going to build all these, and they're marketing in a certain way. Yeah. And then when things turn bad, then the language changes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's the residents' fault. Yeah, when yeah. we built, it's like, oh no, this is you know, this is all lovely. Yeah, this like really distancing yourself away from it. Well, I think that's what happens. You know, um, at some point you realise this isn't working how you thought it might work, or we just don't care about these people these are people that we don't feel are um, as valued as people who own their own homes so we have this really interesting thing that we don't necessarily see in europe so home ownership in lots of countries in europe isn't a big deal people just rent um, and that gives them a certain amount of autonomy and the rents not everywhere but can be more affordable and this thing of you know um you know, buying as the ultimate thing to do is much more of a UK thing than it is, for example, in France. And actually the quality of housing in Germany and France for what's called social housing is fantastic. I mean, my eyes used to be like popping out of my head mm -hmm. reading the architectural magazine and go, this is social housing? You know, wonderfully, um, often quite clean areas, beautiful finishes nothing like what you see in the UK where just because you don't have a lot of money there's almost a that will do yeah that looks a bit rough actually we're not going to put a fin finish on that because we don't believe the people will take care of it anyway and that kind of class-ridden um, values attitude which is negative about anyone who doesn't have money is not as strong in lots of parts of um, Europe. So we see a completely different attitude to social housing. Would you put that down to um, the attitudes of the governments then, or councils or just the authorities in general in the in UK and Europe? That's a great question. So I think it's a mix of that, but also society at large. Um, there is... Because we have this thing about home and identity and, you know, my home is my castle and getting on the housing ladder is such an important thing. So we've kind of built it up into part of our identity. And anyone who isn't part of that conversation, oh, well, you know, you get what you get and don't, you know, you shouldn't complain, you're lucky to have somewhere. Um, so I do think, you know, you end up in this situation where as policymakers and as designers, and particularly in the past, it's getting better now, would be talking in a way that suggested that actually we don't need to do better than we're doing. And if people are saying that there's a problem with crime or maintenance or all sorts of other things, there's no play equipment, whatever it is, oh, well, who cares? They're, they're not people that we need to worry about. Um, you take that over a number of years and that's why we saw this kind of real degradation i think in a, particularly in a lot of housing schemes but you started to see it in schools there are areas you go to the school and go goodness me you know the amount of money just to keep this school going um, if that's being taken out of your school budget that means you might have less on teachers and other things that you um, you know, need to do. It's very interesting that this recent scandal about the aerated concrete and they're saying, oh yes, we've given lots of money to the school's budget so this can be um, fixed. What are you all complaining about? But it's good that we're also getting to hear, it's so important that we're getting to hear that head teachers saying, okay, 
but that comes out of the budget for everything. So maybe we won't have teaching assistants and maybe we won't be able to buy this equipment for the school because we have to spend it on fixing this problem that we weren't involved in the design of this building, but now it's passed back to us as our problem. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting um, that you're in this line of work in the mm. first place. You're, you've got quite an interesting career background. <laughs> before you've got into what you're doing now. Mm. Um, having from electrician, <laughs> architecture, construction, etc. And now you're working to diversify the construction space. Yeah. And I'm wondering whether, is there any sort of thread? Because it sounds as well like this is a topic that you're very passionate about, mm. clearly very knowledgeable about as well. Mm. Is there any sort of thread based upon your own background and upbringing that led you down this path and led you to to where you are now, where you're working to diversify the space and um, mm. diversify with this space. Absolutely. So um, thank you for that. Um, I It's interesting because I often refer to it as a thread um, because, you know, in hindsight, you can kind of frame things in a particular way. But it wasn't a plan. So that's the first thing. You know, incidentally, coming from a, a family on a very low income, so housing was an issue from a very early age. I ended up going to four different primary schools because we were moving around quite a lot. I don't meet a lot of people who say they went to four different primary schools. Um, but if um, housing is insecure or you're temporarily homeless and all of that kind of stuff, that can be part of the experience. So I, I experienced that. Um, and lived in very different situations. So lived in uh, a post-war prefab. So some of the housing couldn't get built um, quickly enough. So they did these little bungalows. And when you put a double bed into the bedroom, you couldn't get into the bedroom. They, that's how small these spaces were. Wow. Um, squatting. So um, squatting in um, Brixton. Um, so at the time, a lot of those um, larger old Victorian houses um, people weren't kind of using them and moving out into the suburbs. So um, squatted for a, a period of time. Um, and then um, as part of a conversation that lots of people were having about the quality of housing and their needs, etc., etc., that's when we started to see these sort of grassroots um, housing co-ops and associations coming up, which are now all pretty much quite corporate. You know, they're part of the social housing scene. You'll recognise all the big names, but a lot of them started as people sitting around a table saying, you know, what are we going to do? There's a house up the road, maybe you could buy that and do it up and someone moves in there. That is solving an issue for that family, that individual. Um, then I think, I think there was an expectation that I would just kind of go sixth form and do um, A-levels and all that kind of thing and, you know, do, you know, do some sort of decent job. Um, but again, I think that thing that I had in my mind is how can I help my family? And I thought, I don't know, I think maybe I should go and do an apprenticeship or something like that. And a friend at school, she um, came in actually and had this job advert. Um, do you want to do an apprenticeship? We're looking for people from all different backgrounds and they listed all the things, plastering, carpentry, and I thought, that sounds great, I'll be an electrician. Um, and someone said, you might get electrocuted, and I thought, yeah, <laughs> but I think I'll get quite a lot of work if I'm an electrician. And anyway, um, I don't think being an electrician is necessarily the only thing I want to do, but having a trade, this is going to be awesome. So I work with the local authority, um, working on the repair and maintenance, mainly of housing. And so seeing all these different types of buildings and going, 
this is interesting. This one's tall, that one isn't. This one's concrete, that one's brick. What is all this about? It's like I was in, suddenly realized there was a language going on. And, you know, the people that were in the houses felt very happy that they were in the houses and maybe kind of looked at the people who were in the, um, in blocks and things thinking, oh, you know, wouldn't want to be there, etc., etc. As I said, housing policy at that time, you had three choices. Now it's just one and that's it. Um, but I'd have all these experiences and experience all these buildings and the challenges that I had. And I, it, it evoked feelings in me like, oh, I'm going to a tower block. Okay, I'm getting maybe a bit more stressed and I've got to press the buzzers to try and get in and the bin stores seem to be just near the front door for some reason. And oh my God, is that someone's dog? <laughs> just kind of running wild. You know, you'd see and have these experiences that were about the massing of the building, but also how space was used. And I was like, I don't get this. And then you'd go to a, a house which has a gate and a little garden and a front door. And that would be a whole other series of reactions. So when I talk about psychological access, that's the kind of thing um, that I mean, the way that a building can almost hold um, the bias and the kind of almost stereotypes about what might happen in those spaces. So I knew I wanted to do something with art and design. I didn't think it was architecture. I thought architects were all white guys with polo neck jumpers <laughs> and really funky glasses. Um, I've now become the stereotype of having the funky glasses <laughs> and wearing black quite a lot. Um, but yeah, that's what I thought. I don't know anyone who does this. It's probably lots and lots of maths. I don't know. I don't know if this is for me. Um, and then discovered that there was an access course that I could do in, at what was then um, South London Poly. I think it was South London Poly then maybe, but it's now South Bank University. Um, and that kind of really opened the door to me where people started talking about these eras of architectural design and the streets in the sky thing came from this Swiss architect. But what he was talking about was you take a village like this and you literally lift it up like that. Um, and there would be shops and schools and nurseries and all these different things. Oh, okay. Exactly. Yeah. What Britain done is left all that stuff on the street and went, the housing's there and access to the housing. And maybe there's some bin shoots and mm. that's it. Good luck. Um, so we really, you know, as a nation decided to take on an experiment with something that was psychologically quite different from what people were used to. Um, so once I got into architecture and I thought, you know, I was, you know, really excited and very optimistic, I'm going to be able to change things and build better housing. And I was so thankful that there were people who thought like that. But also there were conversations about what people deserved and whether they would be able to live in those properties. It's almost like this is too good for them. And I thought this is interesting because they don't realize that the them they're talking about is me and my family. Um, and that really, really shocked me. I thought in any job, you just want to do the best that you can do. But all this other stuff, all this other baggage about who deserved what and how good someone's space was and whether you could actually take care of it and all of this kind of stuff came into play. Um, I was lucky enough to work on regeneration projects that were fully funded. 
But what started to happen is then there were these conversations about these public-private partnerships and you had to build private housing, which aren't necessarily bad things in and of themselves. But the impact in terms of increasing density or people thinking, actually, I don't feel like I'm part of this, or being asked to move away, those were the kinds of things, um, mainly um, after my time in um, practice directly, but you kind of went, oh, hold on a minute, something else is happening here. So these estates that for a long time have been neglected, where people have been screaming about their maintenance and that kind of thing, they were getting change, but they're not part of that change. Mm. Um, in the early regeneration projects, people moved out and they came back. In these ones, not so much, but they might be told that they can move back, but not get the opportunity as um, what happened in Southwark with the development around Elephant and Castle, which is amazing. Go and see it if you haven't seen it, but the number of social units, phew, less than 100 out of thousands, thousands of housing units, business, restaurants, the whole nine yards, but social units, affordable units, very low. It's very interesting. And as urban, uh, planning that how a community or city or town or whatever mm. is put together mm -hmm. literally is something that it doesn't it hasn't really crossed my mind mm. really to be honest mm. it's like you just live there and you just live there you don't really think about the intentionality of how that place was really put yeah. together um and you talk about the elephant and castle so there isn't many social houses available because yeah. yeah. i guess it's all private Big corporates for, the, are coming to for the most part, yeah, that um, housing developers have been working with local authorities to redevelop places. Um, Boris is really important in this conversation. Sorry to bring him up. But <laughs> as London mayor, he changed because the mayor has certain powers around planning. They developed something called the London Plan. Boris changed the rules. So when Mayor Ken was in, you had to have, say, 35 to 40% social housing. I might be wrong on the percentages, but that was just the rule. Yes, you could build your thing, but we want social housing as part of this development. Boris changed the rule to, if you can afford it. So huge regeneration projects like Battersea, etc., that have come on and were agreed under Boris, they could say, we think we'd do 50 and then come back later and go, we don't think that works well for us, so we're going to do 30. And, you know, you're in a situation now where, um, you know, Sadiq Khan has said, we need to get back to building social units again. So you may have been on the tube and seen there's been the golden era of council housing and renewal of neighbourhoods. Um, but that's a political choice to say, you can build what you want or no, we need homes for Londoners or the people that live here. Yeah. Then what's the knock-on effects to the communities? Mm. So many. So, you know, the people, there were around 2,400 units, housing units, um, that were all um, social housing um, within the, what, the Haygate and Aylesbury estates. I think it's roughly around that number. Um, so there would have been local schools that those kids go to. There would have been, you know, um, neighbourhood and community um, initiatives or groups of people who just know each other and say hello all of the time. 
um, there would have been a whole sort of series of connections and relationships. You ask those people to move, they're not moving as one lump, they're going wherever they're going. So basically you're kind of um, that network of support and community and those connections to other types of amenity and infrastructure like schools, etc. that just disappears. And you're replacing it with another group of people who may well build their own kinds of networks and communities, but you're already signaling with the types of um, amenity that you have, um, who those people might be and how much money they might have. So the kind of, we don't see so many community centres and youth clubs and things like that. So money is not an issue in terms of accessing those spaces. Maybe they ask you to pay a few quid for the um, taekwondo class or something like that. Mm. Um, but for the most part, it is about people being able to access it. And what you see in a lot of these sort of more commercialised spaces, it's the coffee shop and the, another coffee shop and the rest. So these are spaces that are much more reliant they're commercially driven spaces. Outdoor spaces, sometimes they have seating, sometimes they actually make sure that you can't sit down. Um, we don't want people who don't have homes sitting on these benches or sleeping here and all of that kind of stuff. So we've moved into a space where we can have what's often termed as aggressive architecture. So you have, you make provisions, you make the seats, you know, it's our bus stops and look, the seats are kind of tilted mm. like this. Mm. That's why the people can't sleep on them. Wow. So you can't sleep on something like that. You can just about kind of lean on it. They've made it very narrow. So that was a conscious choice, conscious decision to say, ah, we need to think about how we're going to deter some people and invite others. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit earlier on, and I'm going to paraphrase it slightly because mm. I can't remember the exact word in, but mm. you spoke about how communities were being rebuilt and the people that were from that community didn't have a voice or say in, in how it was being rebuilt. Yeah. Is that some of the, as well as your background and your, that you've shared upon, is that some of the, the inspiration behind you doing what you do now? Absolutely. I think it's so important that communities can have a voice I think it is getting better in terms of how people are thinking about that engagement. I'd definitely like to see more honesty and authenticity. So please don't sell people that they're going to basically design their own house when they're not, which, you know, I've been in that situation where before we got in the room, that is what residents were told. So as soon as we start talking, they're angry because they're like, we thought you were going to sit here and draw whatever we told you to draw <laughs> seriously and you're going why on earth would anyone say that um so this thing about having a voice having a seat at the table being able to hold the pen is incredibly important as i said there weren't a lot of people like me i was being talked about in a room where people didn't think you know i was present and i think in terms of the mix of people, because it's not about pushing people out of the door and replacing them with someone else. It's really about having that mixture of lived experience, perspectives, etc., and valuing everyone around that table. Now, we definitely need more people who understand um, and are excited by thinking these things through. There are people in our industry that are not that interested in housing at all, and just like, Meh, that's just not my thing. 
Um, but I think when you have that lived experience, when you've seen the impact that it has, you just have a different kind of perspective on it. And you want to say, listen, if you do this, then it could have that impact. Have you thought about, no, didn't, it didn't cross my mind. I've been living in a house that my mum bought and was handed down from her mum or whatever it is. It's a completely different mindset around the home. Big part of who we think we are is very much linked to that. Um, so yeah, the purpose of what I do is to bring more people um, either into the industry but also support the ones that are there. So they can be experiencing being in spaces where they're not necessarily taken seriously as professionals. You don't look like the typical professional. Um, you don't speak like us. You don't sound like us. All of that kind of stuff. So that can mean that you're not necessarily involved in certain conversations or you don't feel like you're progressing. So actually I'll go and do something else. Um, also, I'm really passionate and excited about people being able to lead their own businesses, come up with their own answers and ideas and that kind of thing, and be part of that conversation from that perspective as um, leaders. Um, so that's why I do what I do. That's why our vision is a world built for all, by all. Um, and you need, I think, that mix so that we can get much more inclusive environments because we don't think about the things that we don't experience. You know, if you've never tried to get one of those double prams up the stairs on a tube, you know, all mm. of that kind of stuff. If you've never had to um, maybe take an elderly parent across town and then suddenly you're there are not enough toilets, there's quite a lot of walking, there's a huge amount of stairs. And if mobility is an issue, you might start to say, we're not going to do those things. Maybe we don't go to that event. We don't go to the theatre. We don't go to all these different places because they're not really made for us. Um, and this has been an issue for quite some time. I, I actually wrote a blog piece about um, bathrooms, which doesn't sound like it's a very exciting topic. But um, I wrote about bathrooms because bathrooms are often in the middle of this space where we're talking about justice and spatial justice. So um, over recent years, there's been this kind of attempt at a culture war and making people feel othered, and particularly um, for the trans community. And one of the things everyone was screaming about is bathrooms. You know, we don't want to share bathrooms. Maybe we want to share bathrooms. There shouldn't be in all this kind of stuff. And there's kind of hysteria. And then you kind of go, OK, but isn't that interesting that over time, whenever there's been an attempt to push out a group or to make them feel unwelcome, it's often bathrooms. So we saw it in apartheid in the Jim Crow area in America where bathrooms were segregated. Do you know when um, disabled people had the right to have bathrooms in public places? Any idea? No. 1995. I, I didn't, you know, I, I just always assumed they did. But I guess, like no. you said, when you're not a part of the group, you don't really recognise. Exactly. So it came under something called the Disability Dis Discrimination Act 1995. And the wording is, you know, every person in a public space should have access to a bathroom. And I think that is really important that that was expressed. But what was happening before 1995? That's what, that was going, what was going through my head, exactly when you said yeah, that. What yeah, were people yeah. doing before that? So it's quite normal now. You come to a building, you know, much like this one, and there will be a bathroom that has enough space for a wheelchair to turn. 
that has to sink a little bit lower. So if you're seated or smaller, you can wash your hands. But actually the standard design of a bathroom doesn't take any of that necessarily into account. Um, often when you go to the theatre or an event space, you'll notice that there's the queue for the women's toilets. There's always a lot snaking longer. snaking all around the... Oops, sorry. And the men are just in and out. Exactly. Yeah. Men going... And the women are <laughs> yeah. trying not to stare at them and be angry. <laughs> But this thing of not having enough bathrooms for women goes back, you know, to a time where women were not expected to be in public spaces. So you can imagine the Victorian times, you're wearing a corset, um, you are not invited to spaces, and even if you went, you couldn't be comfortable because if you needed a bathroom, goodness help you. You know, either they weren't there or actually you've got all this stuff to kind of get out of to be able to use the bathroom so i found this quote where it said you know women were allowed to go as long as the leash of their bladder and i thought that was so mm. interesting if you want to manage or control groups of people it seems like bathrooms are have been the typical way to go or just to you know not recognize them or ignore their needs so i think now we have these discussions about um, bathrooms, accessibility, and there's still a little bit of, you know, there are clubs and things that might might not have that provision because I think, just do disabled people want to go clubbing? Like, well, why not? They're people. Music is great. I mean, but it's that those kinds of assumptions and um, stereotypes which means that people don't think about nightlife space and all these kinds of things in terms of you know being inclusive for example around disability yeah. you know the more you talk because i said to you at the start you you say things that i've never thought about and the more you talk the more i'm like you're saying a lot of things <laughs> that i've never considered before yeah. we spoke about this now disabled people in a club and i think actually now i don't think i've Maybe I, I'm wrong, but I don't think I've ever come across anyone in a wheelchair and think in a club. Yeah, I don't think I have, and it, it would make sense. They're not built. It's not, it's not very accessible yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. stairs. There's no lift. It's just it's not accessible whatsoever. Um, and it's crazy. You're seeing a lot of things that make me think maybe I should be a lot more intentional about mm. how I think about the environment and how we interact with the environment. Because mm. um, the way in which it's built, it's mm. built okay for maybe someone, in some degree, someone mm. like me can easily get across town and do what I've got to do, etc. Mm. Um, maybe from a, a, a sort of like a class-based or racialized angle, mm. there's ways in which some groups of people are being marginalized and obviously have disadvantages. Yeah. Um, but for an able-bodied person, it's, it's okay. Um, yeah. I, can, I don't have any issue with that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I th um, thank you so much for saying that, because I think what the built environment can do is normalise something and actually create the issue in the first place. So a lot of disability advocates um, have been doing amazing work in this space, and they talk about the social model versus the medical model. So what they say is, the medical model is, um, I'm seen as someone with a disability and maybe I need personal aid, but basically it's a medical issue, it's a me issue. The social model says, well, if you design things better, I wouldn't have an issue. If I can access a building, if I can go clubbing if I want to, if I can get on any train or get off at any tube stop that I like, I don't have to worry about expensive taxis and taxis that are designed um, 
for people where mobility or wheelchair use and all of that kind of stuff. So you are creating a situation where I can't access it and then you're saying it's a me problem. No, 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 no. This is a society-wide problem. And I think you can, you know, extrapolate that and look at that in terms of a lot of different um, social identities, but incredibly important around disability and access because it's a group that actually we are very likely to have this touch our life in some way or another. Disability covers a wide range of um, um, different areas from mobility into invisible um, disabilities. Um, however, you know, it's still something that despite the fact that we've always, as a as the human race, this has always been there, but we just kind of don't think about it until um, we're affected by it. So, you know, when someone breaks their leg, all of a sudden they realise all the different ways that they are limited or they're going to have to ask other people to take time away. Can you give me a lift? Can you help me up so I can use the bank ATM? They've gotten better at that, mm -hmm. so they often too, or they're at a much lower um, level. Um, but this kind of thing, you just... It, we're in the 21st century, we shouldn't still be talking about this, but it's because we don't let go um, of those biases and we're not curious enough about other people. Not curious and maybe not empathetic enough mm. as well. Like emp really empathising with somebody, their particular situation, maybe whether that's an environmental situation, a yeah. physical situation or whatever, and how mm. their experience might be different to my own experience and trying to take that into account in how we make decisions and yeah. how we builds how we plan how we do things how we run society in general yeah yeah i think it's empathy absolutely and also understanding because some of these lines have been drawn in drawn in the sand but in a way that feels quite permanent if you see what i mean so again because people just like you say hadn't even thought about it hadn't even thought about what someone's day is like if they are needing to push something with wheels or they're you know a wheelchair user or something like that um, and if it doesn't sort of touch me I don't think about it but that lack of empathy because every now and then you are going to see someone and then you go oh yeah oh I'll get the door you know if you're empathetic other people just mm, I'm sure you'll work it out or someone else will do it yeah. um, but that has an impact on how independent people feel that sense of feeling free and independent is really important to our self-esteem and to our quality of life. And, you know, if you decide, you know, tomorrow, you know what, I fancy going camping, I'm going to jump in the car, drive somewhere, put your tent. There are so many different things that you don't have to think about in order to do that. Whereas for a lot of people, they'd have to plan this months in advance and there'd be limited places they could go. And actually some of the places they would call up and say, well, actually I'm wheelchair using, they'd be like, oh, sorry, no, we don't cater for you, bye. You know, that kind of thing. And that's ridiculous. You know, I'm not saying that every single place can be um, um, accessible, but if we don't try, we're going to maintain this thing of, oh, well, you know, you just don't see people doing this, so why should we design for them? Yeah, it's like with the tube stations, you know, some of them will mm. say, yeah, wheelchair access, some don't. Sometimes yeah. on the tube you'll see mothers with their prams mm. and having to get some help to go up the stairs because yeah. they can't carry the pram up themselves with a baby inside of it. Um, and it does make me think a lot, actually, about a lot of, a lot of different things. Mm. If we, 
talk about regeneration. Mm-hmm. So with all of this in mind, you've brought mm-hmm. up a lot of pertinent examples. Mm-hmm. What does regeneration look like? What does good regeneration look like? And are there any mm-hmm. good examples of it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, what is regener- regeneration? I think regeneration has become a little bit of a dirty word um, in terms of how people understand it. But that's partly because it's been connected with this sense of um, somebody is coming to a space where we have lived as a community for 20, 30, 40 years. They are going to tell us about this brand new sort of design, but we're not going to be part of it. And so regeneration has become this word which might be, for a lot of people, a little bit sort of triggering and worrying, you know. Perhaps in the past it was like, oh, great, they're going to spend some money. This is good. We're going to get, you know, these things that we'd always wanted and an upgrade to our quality of life. But it hasn't always been the case. But generally you are talking about some form of um, urban renewal, some a place that hasn't really been um, focused on getting the attention that it needs, getting the money spent, et cetera, et cetera. But I recognise there is this kind of polarising thing around that kind of language. Um, Gentrification is often the kind of other word that people might use. So it's literally the, you know, we are going to now make money off this land and you'll have to go somewhere else. Absolutely. Examples of good regeneration. That's a great question. So the things that spring to my mind where we've seen perhaps community need um, really being taken into account, being innovative, being, um, I suppose, quite exciting, but also um, providing something that people can really access. So there's a project, I'll talk about um, a landscape one first of all. So there was an abandoned railway line in Manchester. Um, So this is not being used, it's just there. And they kind of decide we're gonna make it this amazing green space walkway that people can walk along, cycle along. Um, You know, it's completely accessible, but it becomes this additional amenity space. Um, and I was so surprised because they were saying, oh, yeah, we, we, you know, I was speaking to the people um, that designed this and talked about this kind of community engagement. I said, oh, yeah, we went out to the community and we said, what do you want? And also, which bit of it would you like to be part of? You know, you'll have your own space. And I'm like, seriously? And they said, oh, yeah. And we talked to um, people who were homeless and we talked to um, communities, you know, um, from... Um, different ethnic backgrounds and we also talked to sex workers and we talked to children and I was like whoa whoa whoa, wow (laughs) so they really took it seriously in terms of understanding who that community was and giving everybody a say but also a space that they're part of the kind of legacy the maintenance the delivery of what that space is so I found that incredibly exciting um I'm thinking of London examples and that's always quite kind of um, but I'll say that there's a lot of stuff that's happened around the King's Cross development that for me has been I suppose surprising and exciting and amazing so um, there's still work to do actually in King's Cross when you go down there you're still still digging up something or something's coming out of the ground But we're talking about abandoned industrial land that has been completely reinvigorated. 
Um, and I think the key thing really was taking over that old granary store and saying, right, um, it's going to be a university. It's like, and that completely changes what people even think about um, the area. We're going to think about the canal, we're going to think about the connectiveness, the stations, the hotels, the business. There's all this kind of stuff. Now, there will be people that say, oh, OK, but the business is all a bit kind of pricey and that kind of thing. But I think also making space for smaller businesses and encouraging um, enterprise is always pretty fantastic. Um, and where you get the situation that a place is almost reborn, but people can find their space within it. That's what that's what you really want. Not this kind of out of the way you lot, the rich people are coming. When it's, it sounds, um, especially when you talk about the Manchester example, sounds so obvious that just ask mm. the people first what they want, it and then from obvious. there, then go and build what they want. Don't just swoop in and build whatever you think. Yeah. <laughs> what you think works, maybe from the community yourself in the first place. Yeah. No, it sounds really obvious, but I think again, I wonder often that. And I think it's also maybe part of the training. I think that particularly architectural training, I can say this because I'm an architect, um, gives you the sense that you should be the one making the decisions. I think it's much better now in a lot of the universities where they're encouraging, or the students are actually leading and saying, no, 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 we really want to do this kind of community engagement or talking or listening or whatever it is in terms of a description. But I think in the past it's been, you know, you go in there and, you, you know, with your expertise, you say what the, you think this area needs. And that perspective can mean and that bias can mean, because lots of architects come from more kind of middle class or wealthier backgrounds. I think they need this because that's what I would like. And the community is going, well, I'm not quite sure why we're getting this, this and this. What we asked for was that, that, that. No, no, no. We know what you need. You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, and again, that's why we need those different lived experiences, you know, holding the pen and being having a seat at the table. Even if it's say, like, can we literally listen to what the community have said um, in terms of what those needs are and what their expectations and hopes are? They're the experts in this area. They've lived here. They know every bit of it and what the challenges are and what really, really works. But this kind of come in and go, no, 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 we know what we're doing. Yeah, that's been part of the the issue, I think, for a long time. Some of the main things I've got from this conversation, mm. I've, I've learned a hell of a lot in the first place. <laughs> but some of the main things I've got, one is the intentionality mm. with which how our communities and uh, cities and et cetera are built mm. and how we should take into account other people's perspectives and everything you know when it comes to these because yeah. there's a lot of things we don't we might not necessarily think about mm. things like i think the random things could be like how high is the curb is there any drop curb so yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. that's has some wheels can easily get down or there isn't but mm. all these things mm. um and that's something i'm really going to take away and um really keep in mind yeah uh, is there uh any key message that you'd want for anyone either whether it's something you've already mentioned or something that we haven't touched upon yet already that you'd mm. want for people that are listening to this to take away? Um, I, th I hope that what people take away is that our built environment is incredibly precious. It facilitates every single thing we want to do from working or learning and living, dying, everything, and our movement around it. Um, we all are powerful in having a say in that, really, really use that um, voice. Um, 
it can't be left to such a narrow band of people in one of the most diverse cities in Europe, maybe even in the world, to say that's the only thing um, that we need. Um, the danger there is that we replicate something that just isn't fit for purpose. That's a phrase that we often um, use, whether something is fit for purpose in terms of our the way that we design. Um, and something that reflects the needs of the community. So one of the things that we haven't talked about, we talked a bit about disability and there's a crossover here, but for example, most of the West is aging population. Um, but when you look at a lot of the um, new homes that are going up, they always have like a 25 year old kind of sipping Prosecco kind of thing and go, oh, there's a new gym. And, da, da. and I'm not saying that older people might not want those things, but I think that's incredibly interesting. They have in mind who might live there and they kind of project that image out. But when you actually look at the demographics of the city, there are that those, those groups of people, but they're not the only ones. So <clears throat> we need to think more intentionally about how we serve the community that exists, not just the community that we imagine in a marketing brochure. That's amazing. <laughs> and I've learned so much speaking of you today. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> on to the podcast. It was absolutely my pleasure. And I hope I didn't go and geek out too much no, about no, all no, this no, stuff. No, 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 no. Um, I love passion. Yeah, I, I was captivated. So oh, I'm, I'm sure that other people listening are going to be captivated too. So thank you so much for coming on once again. Mm -hmm. And if you're listening, thank you for tuning in. This is 1000 Voices. We had Dana walk on a podcast. And for now, we're out.